Well, good morning. It's good to see you. Good to be here. Good to be up from redemption again. This is, uh, believe it or not, we only have two more of these encounters uh, before we're, my wife and I are, are done here. Um, so I, I'm treasuring these times when we can be together. Um, just a couple other prayer requests I would add. Continue to pray for redemption. They have had an overwhelming response of people who are interested in pastoring and leading that congregation. And so their job has not been trying to find people who are interested, but to sift out the people who they want to talk to. Uh, so over the course of the, the next few weeks, they're going to be looking at about 10 different people that they have so far narrowed it down to. So please continue to pray for them for their next uh, pastor. And continue to keep my wife and I in your prayers also as we uh, transition and try to navigate the real estate market in Washington, D.C., which is, shall we just say, slightly inflated. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father in heaven, thank you. Thank you for your word this morning, which uh, comes to us to encourage us, to give us strength, and to give us hope. Father, we pray for those who are here this morning who maybe are suffering unjustly and feel like they are ready to give up and to cry uncle. Father, we pray for your encouragement and strength for them. Father, we thank you for the gift of your Son, Jesus Christ, who makes our hope true and real. It is in his name that we pray. Amen. So the question I want to ask this morning is, what makes you cry uncle? So maybe you're like me, you remember back, you know, when you were a kid, maybe you had a, a sibling or a next-door neighbor, and you guys would get into it occasionally, mix it up a little bit. You know, maybe it was the headlock. You know, the headlock with the noogie? I don't know if you still call it that, but back then we call it, you know, you can do the headlock, but you can't do noogies on top of my head with your, with your knuckle. Um, you know, maybe it was the arm behind the back, you know, twisted up so high that, you know, you just, you just cry, uncle, uncle, uncle. Maybe it was like your, your head getting rubbed into the carpet. So you can tell I had a brother, right? <laughs> we got into it occasionally. And, you know, the goal in, these, in this kind of mixing it up is always to try to get the other person to say uncle. To give up and to do what you want them to do. When I was in Iowa City, I pastored a church, we had a, one of our members, his job, his specialty was getting people to say uncle. He was phenomenally good at it. In fact, he got paid to do it. He got paid to do it by the United States Army. He was an interrogator. He was a professional interrogator at a place that you perhaps have heard of, Abu Ghraib. His job was to interrogate Iraqi prisoners after everything had hit the fan. They brought in a new team of interrogators and, and he was one of them. And he was also a Christian. And he was very, very, very good at what he did. And I asked him once, so he actually uh, left the army, he conscientiously objected out of the army because he he faced such kind of an inner struggle, inner turmoil with being asked to elicit uncle from people, that he couldn't reconcile it with his faith, and so he, he left. But I asked him one time, I said, so, because it's interesting, right? It was an interesting thing to have this friend who had done this, and so I wanted information, I wanted to know details. And so I said, Josh, how, how did you do it? And he'd say, well, there's three things that we use. 
and one of them always works. The first one is reward. We go to the person, we sit them in the chair, and we offer them things. If you offer them the right thing, they give in. They say, uncle, and they do what you want, they give you what you want, whatever information or whatever it is, you just, you offer them reward. Sometimes reward doesn't work, and then we use pain. And oftentimes pain works pretty quick. It would work on me immediately. Apply a little bit of pain, person says, okay, you know, what do you want to know? But he said when people are truly committed, when people truly, truly believe, reward rarely works. Pain rarely works. The thing that works is fear. We scare them. We terrify them with the unknown, with what might happen or what could happen. Fear almost always gets them. And that's what this church in Smyrna was facing. They, they were facing all of these, but the greatest of them was fear. It's why John tells them, do not fear. It's, it's, their, it's the one imperative you get early on in this is do not fear. The, the church in Smyrna was being persecuted and they were scared. And the writer knows that suffering often produces fear. The kind of fear that makes you give in or give up. And yet, as, as Christians, as people who follow Christ, we're called to not fear, but to be faithful. And so how, how do we move? How do we move from a place of fearfulness to faithfulness? That's really what this entire letter to the church in Smyrna is about. It's about moving them from a place of fear to a place of faithfulness. Because they're, they're facing real, real persecution, this church is. And so how do we, how do we glean lessons from this? How do we as, as Christians in our lives today here, how do we move from fear to faithfulness. Well, I think one of the things that's helpful, as, as it is with all of these letters, is to understand the context, the real context of the church in Smyrna. And so what can we say about them? We can say that Christ's people, God's people, are persecuted. That's a, that's a real thing that happens, and it's a real thing that's happening here. The church at Smyrna is really being persecuted. And to the church of Smyrna write, the words of the first and the last who died and came to life, I know your tribulation and your poverty. So what do we know about the persecution that the church in Smyrna was facing? What kind of persecution was it? Well, it was likely at least economic persecution. That's why he says, I know your poverty. Somehow the manner of the persecution that's happening to the church at Smyrna is costing them financial kind of viability. Maybe they're being removed from the marketplace. Maybe merchants are being blacklisted. We don't, we don't shop at those merchants anymore because those merchants are Christian merchants and so we don't shop at them. Some of these merchants, you know, one of the things that was big in, in the Roman Empire was the creation of idols to worship, to purchase and buy in your house. And so if you were a merchant and you were you know, a craftsman and this is one of the things that you made, you stopped making those things. And so you're not gonna make idols anymore, your income just went way down. 
So we don't, we don't know. We're not really given a lot of details, but it's, it's fair to say that one of the things that's happening here in the church at Smyrna is they are suffering economic persecution. Maybe social persecution. Maybe they're also just being ostracized in the community. One of the things we know about Smyrna is they really took seriously being a friend of Rome. They, that was very valuable to them. And so when there's a group of people in the city that aren't, you know, showing honor to Rome the way that they're supposed to, they, they're being, being shunned. But it goes beyond that. It goes beyond economic and social persecution. We also know that there was actual physical persecution happening. People were being put in jail. It says here, you will be tested. You're going to be put in jail. We know that uh, Polycarp, who, raise your hand if you've heard of Polycarp. It's like a, okay, there you go. Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. Guess what happened to the bishop of Smyrna? They tried to burn him at the stake. But when the flames did not engulf his body fast enough, they just, you know, stabbed him until he died in 155 A.D. He was martyred for his faith. So this is real persecution that's happening. And we sit here in the community house in Hinsdale and we think to ourselves, I can't even imagine that kind of persecution. I can't even imagine it. And you're right, we can't. We can't even imagine it. Maybe a few of you have traveled to countries where this kind of persecution is happening and you've seen it firsthand. But we really don't have a box for understanding persecution that looks like this. Our brothers and sisters in China do. I just saw in the news this past week that they demolished a, a church in China. Just bulldozed it. Our brothers and sisters, and, and we have them, in North Korea know what this is, is like, what real persecution is like. You die. In many Middle Eastern countries, our brothers and sisters know what this kind of persecution is like. They face jail, beheading, all kinds of other physical, humiliating tortures. We don't have a box for this. It's not that we don't perse have persecution upon us. Right? We, we do have the opportunity here in this country to be persecuted for our faith. It just doesn't look as bad as this. If you think about the, the case that's been in the news, the people who were asked, you know, we're going to get married, having a nice wedding. My daughter's getting married March 10th. We're doing this whole thing with, uh, you know, cake bakers. You go in, you want to ask to have a cake baked, and it's no problem. Unless, of course, you're a gay and lesbian couple, and you want to have a cake baked, and you ask a Christian baker to bake your cake, and the Christian baker says, yeah, I don't think I can bake that cake. And this isn't about a decision about whether or not the Christian baker should bake the cake or shouldn't bake the cake. That's not the discussion we're having. The discussion we're having is the Christian baker decides that based on their conscience, they don't think they can do it. And what happens is a big court case. Ost being ostracized, being asked to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars to defend themselves. A good friend of mine is a lawyer that's defending one of these, one of these uh, bakers. And it, it's a big deal. 
one of the things that Jeff and I and Brent may very really possibly face in the future is having our speech classified as hate speech as it is in other countries. That when we say what the gospel says, what the Bible says, the speech that we say, the sermons that we give, if we say certain things about certain types of behavior or certain beliefs, that could be classified as hate speech. Maybe it would get you fired in your own workplace if you said what you believed. Maybe you get taken to the office for wearing a a t-shirt that has a Bible verse on it. It's not the same as what's happening in Smyrna, but it's here. We we face it, just in a different different sense. And so it's true that we suffer. And in fact, like the church in Smyrna, there's Christians suffering or persecuted unjustly. Think about what they're being persecuted for. They're being persecuted for doing good things. They're, They're doing what they're supposed to do. They're believing in God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And they're seeking to obey Him and all that He has taught. That's what they're doing, and the response of the community around them is to persecute them. Imagine being persecuted for doing the right thing. That doesn't seem to make sense to us. They're being persecuted unjustly for things they don't anticipate being persecuted for, and by people they don't anticipate persecuting them. It's very likely that this church is actually not primarily being persecuted by Romans, but by Jews. That it's the Jews that are kind of leading the charge against the church in Smyrna. So the Jews have got this kind of thing worked out. Imagine this. Right? The way that the Jews have got this worked out is they're like, look, okay, we'll go, we'll go along. They kind of have a little bit of a free pass from Rome. They're like, okay, they're the Jews. They don't cause problems. We just kind of ignore them and everything's fine. We kind of got a little detente, a little peace going on. And then you got this group, subset, of the Jews that say, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're not going to participate in those reindeer games. We're not going to do the things that you're asking. We're going to be bold about our faith. And the Jews are like, okay, yeah, we we don't want to be confused with them, so we're just going to go to our local magistrate and just turn those people in, right? Because we need to have everything working for us, we need to not be shunned economically, we don't want to be known as those people, so we'll lead the charge. So it's the Jews that are primarily doing this, and it's clear from here, it says, the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not. That's what Jesus has to say about this group of people. So we suffer, we're persecuted, we're persecuted unjustly, and the result of this is we want to cry uncle, just like the church at Smyrna did. So this letter comes to them at this moment where they want to say uncle, they want to give up, they want to give in, because the pressure that they are under must have been overwhelming. They're facing economic persecution, social persecution, Some of them are going to jail. They're being told in the letter, some of you are going to jail to be faithful unto death. Whoa, 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 death, what? Wait, what? Oh, stop. Death? Yes. They're ready to give up. They're ready to give in. Maybe they're ready to cry uncle. And so this letter comes to them. This love letter from Jesus. Encouraging them. Because they needed to be encouraged. We should need to be encouraged. 
we should need to be encouraged. We should have places in our lives, experiences where we say, you know what, I could use some of the same comfort that the church in Smyrna was receiving. I should be able to receive some of that. Because we're living our faith out boldly. And so this letter comes to a church that knew what it was like, knew what it needed to be comforted. And here's here's the comfort, the comfort that Jesus offers them. So again, remember, this is a love letter from Jesus being written by Jesus, given to to John, saying, go go say these things, Go, go tell people this. We find hope in the sovereignty of God. How do we move from fear to faithfulness? Hope in the sovereignty of God. Look at what it says. It says right in the very beginning, these are the words of the first and the last. Each of these letters has some designation for Christ that reveals an aspect about himself that is comforting to the church that is receiving the word. Listen, I know you're ready to cry, uncle. I know you're ready to give up. I know you're ready to give in. But listen, these are the words of the first and the last. The first and the last is saying these things. The God who is sovereign, the son who sits at his right hand, who is the first and the last, says these things. Be comforted by the fact that I am in control. I'm the first and the last. Christ is on his throne. And then you have this wonderful, wonderful statement. I know your tribulation. The sovereignty of God includes not just his power, but his knowledge of your situation, your particular situation. That he writes them to comfort them in his sovereignty. I know, I know your suffering. I I know what's happening to you. And I just want you to know that I, I know it. Go and tell, go and tell the church at Smyrna that I know I know what's happening to them. It's not news to me. The one thing you you notice about this is the church is not rebuked. This particular church, there's no rebuke for the church. And why is that? Is it possible that this church has absolutely done nothing wrong and has been fully conformed into the image of God and needs no correction whatsoever? Probably not. But this is not the time for that. This is a church that just needs to hear, listen, these are the words of the first and the last. I know you're suffering. I know it's almost unbearable for you. I just want you to know that I know that and I am in charge and I am in control. This is not a passage about God being surprised by their suffering or confused by it or not knowing, oh, I should have done this, but now I should do that. No, this is a phrase, I'm the first and the last. I know you're suffering that communicates that God is completely 100% in control at this moment. And so one of the ways in which we move from fear to faithfulness is to find hope in the fact that God is sovereign in the middle of persecution and suffering that is real, that makes us want to give up and give in and cry uncle. God is sovereign. And we find hope in God's purpose in suffering. And for God to have a purpose in suffering, he's got to have sovereignty. So this is key. You can't have a purpose for something if if you're not sovereign over it. And so this is key. 
And God's purpose in suffering, in persecution like this, what's happening here is these people are identifying with Christ. Kind of in two ways. One is the fact that they're being persecuted, they're being persecuted because they are Christians. And in, in that way, the persecution finds them out. It marks them off because they are Christians. And so in this sense, part of the purpose is, is these people being identified with Christ and the fact that they're being persecuted for the fact that they're Christians. And they're also participating with Christ, identifying with Christ in his suffering. When we're persecuted, even in the small ways in which we're persecuted in this country compared to the persecution of people and our brothers and sisters in other countries, we are participating with Christ. It was a huge motivation for the early church to actually embrace their persecution because they really were honored by the fact that I get to share in the sufferings of my Savior. I get to suffer what he suffered for the reasons that he suffered. He was persecuted by people who should have honored him and loved him and followed him and yet he was disowned and he was beaten and he was bruised and he was tortured and he was denied. And so when our brothers and sisters in other countries experience this, they say, this is good. In a way that doesn't even make sense to us, they say, this is good because I am being identified with Christ as a Christian and I'm also identifying with Christ in that I am sharing in his sufferings. And so in that, there is purpose in suffering. And we want to be identified with Christ. We do not want to be identified with what John refers to as the synagogue of Satan. This is where I feel like Buddy, Buddy the Elf makes a little bit of a, an appearance in this letter. Right? There's that scene early on where he shows up in Macy's. Uh, it, it's Chris, I know Christmas is over, but we can still use Christmas movies as a reference and helpful illustration. Right? Can we all do this? There's that scene early on where Buddy the Elf shows up at, at Macy's or Gimbel's or wherever it is that he shows up. And he goes in there and he's like, oh, Santa's coming. And then the, uh, the, the guy who runs the department is dressed up as Santa Claus. And he says, hey, uh, you're, I'm Santa. And Buddy the Elf says, you're not Santa. Says, yes, I am. No, you're not. You're not Santa. You don't smell like Santa. He goes, yeah, 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 I'm Santa. Go away. And, and Buddy the Elf gets down to him and says, you sit on a throne of lies. <laughs> and I feel like that's kind of what's happening here with John. They, are, they say they're Jews, but they're not. They are the synagogue of Satan. And so the encouragement, the encouragement that's being received here by the Christians is, listen, you don't want to be identified with people that John just referred to as the synagogue of Satan. That would be bad. You don't want to identify with them. You want to be able to identify with Christ. And so God's purpose in suffering is that we identify with Christ and that we're also conformed to Christ. That through our suffering, through persecution, we're actually perfected and made more and more into the image of Christ. Over and over again in Genesis and in Exodus and in Numbers, we have this picture of people being tested Ten times. If you were to go through and Google uh, tested ten times in the Bible, you'll see there's a whole list of these things where this happens. And so 
we might ask the question, is it really 10 days? Is 10 days the real length of what's going to happen? And maybe, maybe not. The important thing is what's happening here is the people are being told, listen, this is going to be a test for you. And we see it in Daniel. In Daniel it says, test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed to you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this manner and tested them for 10 days. And at the end of 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. The message of Daniel, the message that Christ is giving this church is through persecution, through testing, through suffering, you will be conformed, you will be strengthened actually in your faith. This removes the idea of kind of randomness, meaninglessness in our suffering. Because if God's not sovereign, if God has no purpose for us in persecution and suffering, then the suffering and persecution that we are experiencing is just random. And you might as well give up and give in. But that's not the message that we're given here. They identify with Jesus, they're conformed to Jesus, and quite literally they are proclaiming Jesus. That's what this message is. What's happening is these people are being persecuted, is being thrown in jail. It's the same thing that was happening in the time of Daniel. They were actually not just being identified with God, not just being conformed to God, but they were actually proclaiming him. That their suffering, their persecution was proclaiming Jesus Christ. This was a very real thing that was happening. It's why so much of the early church, I would almost say, looked forward to the opportunity to be persecuted so that they could proclaim Christ in front of other people in the way that they endured. Again, we see it in China, in North Korea, and we say, is there any application for us here? Raise your hand if you're in junior high or high school. Come on, get them up high so I know who you are. Okay, so here's the deal. Put them down now. There is persecution in your schools, right? It works like this. It doesn't work like I'm going to throw you in jail for 10 days. Here's the way it works in school. Listen, we all know that Mary over here is nerdy. She wears the wrong thing to school. She doesn't wear the cool clothes. She doesn't do her hair the cool way. She doesn't have the cool glasses on. It's kind of nerdy and awkward. So here's the way it's going to work. We're not going to sit with her at lunch. We're going to make fun of her in the hallways. We're going to accidentally bump into her and push her around a little bit. We're going to make fun of her in the locker room when we're changing after gym. Because that'll be fun for us. And you're going to help. You're going to participate in it. Right? And there's all this pressure, pressure not to be shunned, pressure not to stick out, because you want to be in too. There's all the pressure in the world for you to not say, well, you know what? The Bible tells me that that person was created the image of God. And I'm supposed to think of that person as my neighbor, so I'm absolutely positively not going to participate with you in that. I'm actually going to sit with them during lunch 
And if I see you bump in the, in the hallway, I'm going to get in your face about it because we don't treat people that way. That stops with me and it stops right now. And I understand some of you are going through your head going, you have no idea what it'll be like for me in school if I do that. Believe it or not, I once was in junior high and high school. I once was on both, both ends of that equation. It's very hard to be in that place and not be able to say, okay, I'm not going to do this thing. Because you feel the weight of it. You feel in the workplace when somebody shows up at the water cool and tells a very funny, inappropriate, off-color joke. And you're supposed to laugh at it. But instead of laughing at it, you say, you know, that's really inappropriate. It's not the way we're supposed to think about people or women or minorities. We shouldn't talk like that. The Bible tells me that women are valuable and important and we're not supposed to leer at them in the way in which we're leering at them or you're trying to get me to leer at them. That's not the way we treat people around here. It's not the way we're supposed to do things. And then we begin to feel, okay, I don't want to have that persecution because I don't want to be ostracized. But in that moment, what you're also doing is you're taking a pass on suffering, on being identified with Christ, on being conformed to Christ and in proclaiming Christ in the workplace and in the school. This is part of how God advances his mission is through persecution of the church, which doesn't seem to make sense, but it's absolutely what occurs. That the church, the mission of God, the proclamation of the gospel hap happens through persecution and suffering and the church stepping forward and embracing it. The great thing about Revelation is this isn't a, a series of individual letters to individual churches. It's a, it's a letter written to a bunch of churches, so churches were able to read each other's mail. The church in Ephesus finds out what's happening to the church in Smyrna, and the church in Smyrna finds out what's happening in the church in Pergamum. And they're like, oh, you know what I should do? I should pray for these, my brothers and sisters. We're experiencing this, but they're experiencing that. It reminds them that in the mission of God, we're not in this alone. We're not suffering alone. That's good news for us to know that our suffering is different and unique, but our brothers and sisters are suffering in other places, and we, we're called to pray as we should. And finally, we hope in God's victory in suffering. That's really, really where the hope is. See, we give up and give in because we don't believe in the promise that's been given. That's why we give up and give in. Fear comes because we don't hope in the promise. The promise that he says, I will give you a crown. That's why we give up and we give in. We don't, we don't think that promise is going to happen. And so Jesus comes and he flips the script, so to speak. Deuteronomy 21 says, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. That's what it says. Don't want to end up that way. Don't end up cursed. That would be bad. Galatians reminds us how Christ flipped the script. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So that we might receive the promised Holy Spirit through faith. That Christ's victory and suffering comes from the fact that he is the one who died and came to life. That's what this is saying. Is this is the encouragement that they find that he died and came to life. Sometimes victory looks like defeat. 
and you think to yourself, you know, we're preaching just a, a short sermon series, just to seven, eight weeks on the seven letters to the seven churches, but you know what's after this in Revelation? All that stuff about Apache helicopters and dragons and serpents and riders on a white horse. That's the interesting and the cool stuff. What's that have to do with the letters of the seven churches? It has everything to do with it. Do you know why? Because these churches were afraid. And they were weary and they were tired. And the church in Smyrna wonders, Am I, should I give in? Should I give up? Is there any hope for me in victory? And you read chapters 4 through 22 and you're like, oh yeah, there's victory. There is an unbelievable landslide running up the score, 285 to 0 landslide that the rider on the white horse with a sword coming out of his mouth, cutting people down. That's victory. The serpent, Satan, is defeated utterly and completely. It's not even close. It's a full-out obliteration. That's the victory. That's what you can hope in. And then you have this phrase, I know your poverty, but you are rich. Present tense, you are rich. Right now, you are rich. How can you say I am rich? I am poor, I can't make any money. You are rich because you have had your sins forgiven. You've been included in Christ, not because of what you've done, but because of what's been done for you. It would be a mistake to read this passage and saying that the only way to get the crown of life is to not cry uncle at any point. That would be misreading this. What this is saying is, listen, don't fear, don't fear dying. Even though outwardly it might look like you got defeated, here's what you need to know. If you're faithful to the end, I'm going to give you the crown of life. It's okay to go through what you're going to go through. You are going to be redeemed and rescued in the end. Don't worry about it. I got your back 100%. If you're here this morning and you are tired and you are weary and you are ready to give up and you're feeling like, I don't think I can go one more day. I don't think I can step out in school. I don't think I can step out at work. Then here's what you need to know. The reward for following Christ is far more than anything you'll feel if you give in. And you're already rich. You already have everything that the other kids in school are offering you. You already have everything that the, the people at your workplace are offering you. You are rich already. You have the gospel. Your sins have been forgiven in Christ. This is how we move from fear to faithfulness through hope in the gospel that is absolutely 100% secure and depends not on what we do, but what has been done for us, orchestrated by God, through Jesus Christ. Victory is ours. You are rich in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you. We thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for the victory that you have won for us through your son, Jesus Christ. That it is sure and true and real in every way. And Father, we come before you repenting for the fact that so often we are ready to give up and give in because we don't trust enough in the promise that you have given us. Father, we repent for the times in which we have given in to the persecution, when we have avoided the persecution, rather than be identified with your son, conformed to your son, and proclaim your son through it. And Father, we do also now 
repent for the fact that we are very forgetful of our brothers and sisters around the world who face very real prison, punishment, death because of their faith. And so, Father, we pray that you would strengthen us and encourage us to remember them as well. In Christ's name, amen. Hear the good news of the gospel. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. Has he covered it all? Has he covered every possible aspect that he could cover of what could separate you? It's nothing. We'll be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In Jesus Christ, the first and the last who died and came to life, your sins are forgiven. Thanks be to God. That is good news, isn't it?